Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you would open to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 7. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 7. Uh, the verses just previous uh, to this have called suffering Christians to think like Jesus thought or think like Christ thinks to have the mind of Christ who willingly suffered knowing the glory that was coming and to live like Christ lived to no longer live according to the passions of your flesh like the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If I were to say to you, your prayers could be hindered, or your prayers could be ineffective, would that startle you? Does that cause you to say, oh no, really? My prayers could be hindered. My prayers could be ineffective. My prayers could lack power. If we're honest, if someone said that to you, the reality, you know, if someone said to you, you might die, you would go, really? Why? But if someone says your prayers could be hindered or your prayers could be ineffective, does that, call, does that startle you at all? It might not. I don't know that it would startle me the way it ought to, but Peter seems to expect his readers to have that sort of response. Think how often we get asked the question, how are you doing? In one sense, it might be the easiest question we ever answer, right? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. And usually we answer that question based off how we feel in the moment. If we're being really honest, we might say, oh, it's not going that good, or it's been a hard week. But still, the answer to that question doesn't seem that difficult. We did, if we're going to be honest, we just tell people how we feel, or we tell them what's happened this week. But a little more tricky question that maybe you've been asked by another believer before is how is your walk with God? How are you doing spiritually? If you've ever been asked that question, maybe you felt caught off guard before. I know I have. You know, how are you doing spiritually? And it's kind of like, I don't know. How am I doing spiritually? I have to think about it. It's not in Inherently, right there, the answer isn't so clear in the moment. But I'll tell you one thing that 
gives me clarity into how I'm doing spiritually more than any other thing. It's when I have to pray. Or when I go to pray is when I know how I'm doing spiritually more clearly than any other time. And maybe it's just because I'm a pastor and I go to people's houses and they ask the pastor to pray or, you know, at, at different places, you know, will you pray? Or it's a Wednesday night and I pray before we start. Or it's before bed and I know that I should pray with my wife before I go to sleep. And sometimes it's difficult to want to pray. Because it's not good spiritually at the moment. Sometimes, you know, after supper, uh, we try to do devotions. And, and there, there are certain times where Laura will be like, girls, you want to grab the Bible and the devotion book? And it's not as easy. My heart's not in that realm of closeness to God. And I find out in those moments. It's a sign of how we are doing spiritually. Prayer is a profound thing. In fact, prayers are an action. They are a result And they are a result of our thinking and our desires and our affections. Prayer is birthed out of the Word of God. When we're thinking the way Christ has called us to think in His Word, and when we're loving those things we're thinking about, prayer is birthed out in a beautiful sense. Our, our prayers are prayed according to the will of God then. But when our thinking hasn't been good, when the narrative we run through our mind is not true, but is from the world, so our prayers will be hindered and will struggle. The drive of this sermon is simply this. Know what time it is and pray. Know what time it is and pray. And we want to ask three questions to this text. What does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? You see that in verse 7? The end of all things is at hand. And then we want to ask, what does he mean when he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded? What does that look like? If we're supposed to be that, what does that practically look like? And what does that have to do with our prayers? So that's what we're going to endeavor to look at this morning. What does it mean that the end of all things are at hand? Uh, Wayne Grudem is helpful here. Here's 
what Grudem says. He says, the end of all things at hand means that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. And now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. Rather than thinking of the world of world history in terms of earthly kings and kingdoms, Peter thinks in terms of redemptive history. From that perspective, all the previous acts in the drama of redemption have been completed. Creation, fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon and return, and the birth of Christ, his life, death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to establish the church. The great last act, the church age, had been continuing for about 30 years by the time Peter wrote this. Thus, the curtain could fall at any time, ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. All things are ready. Close quote. Everything is taking place in redemptive history. The end is at hand. There's one thing left to happen, and that is the return of Christ. And the motivation for his charge to be sober-minded and self-controlled is in light of knowing what time it is. Eschatology, uh, the study of end times, is never spoken of in order that believers begin to try and set the date of when Jesus would return. Now that might surprise you because if you've ever listened to an eschatology expert, it seems like the main point is to figure out exactly the time when Christ will return. That's what people seem interested in when they're studying the end times. But when we look at Scripture, when Christ looks at, tells us about the things to come, and when Peter tells us about the things to come, the purpose is not to figure out the date or time, but it is to motivate us how to live or to give us comfort in the midst of suffering so that our faith would endure. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you meet an expert in the study of end times. I mean, this guy is a guru. He spent his whole life in studying the last things how you ought to respond to that person or an appropriate way would be to respond like this. Oh, wow. I get to talk to an expert in Christian love and hospitality. I get to talk to someone whose prayer life is incredible. Because a true expert in the end things, according to Scripture, is going to be an expert in 
living a life of holiness and prayer and showing hospitality to one another and using their spiritual gifts. I could spend the whole sermon proving this to you from Scripture. I'm going to show you just a few. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 24, uh, we'll begin in verse 36. We're going to see that this is how Jesus used uh, speaking about the end times. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. Here's what Jesus says. And he continues on all the way into chapter 25, verse 46. We're not going to go that far, but they all have a similar point. Here's what he says. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Well, if that shouldn't cause us to realize the main point is not figuring out Exactly when Christ is coming, I don't know what would. But then he says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and kept them and swept them all away. So it'll be with the coming of the Son of Man. So the point of the Noah illustration is they were unaware and the flood came. And he says, this is how it'll be with the Son of Man. He's going to come when you don't expect him. It's going to be a surprise. People are going to be doing exactly what they do. And he's going to all of the sudden show up. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, now here's the point, stay awake. Remember that command, stay awake. For you do not know on what day our Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. That's similar to stay awake. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of the house will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he'll cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then he tells the parable of the ten virgins. And the point is, five were ready with their oil and their lamps. Five other virgins didn't bring extra oil. And when the bridegroom delayed, they had to go buy oil. And then he came when they weren't there and they want into the feast. And he said, I never knew you. They're not allowed in. And then he tells the parable of the talents. And you know, one was given five and he reproduced it. Five more gave it to his master. One, one was given two talents and he gave a profit of two more and one buried it in the ground. Basically, one said, I'm not going to work for the master. I, this is going to waste my time. I'm going to bury it in the ground and I'll just give it back to him. That, that'll be safe. And in verse 25 of that, uh, of the parable of the talents, he says, I, he says, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. The accusation is, is you were lazy. You weren't awake. You weren't ready. You didn't think I gave you something to do. And then he talks about the sheep and goats, how they'll be separated. One group, clothed and fed, those who had needs, and the other ones didn't. They didn't act. But the point is, is Jesus, when he talked about the end times, talked about it in terms of having them know that at any moment, Christ could return. And we will give an account about our life. Turn with me to Romans 13. Paul puts it really succinctly in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Romans 13, verse 11. Paul says, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Because we're in the last days, because the time is short. Don't live like you used to live. Live, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, cast off the works of darkness. Be children of light in this world. It calls us to action. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, this famous passage you probably hear at funerals where 
Speaking of the resurrection, when Christ returns and will be raised, it says, then we'll say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So if Christ is going to return and we are going to be resurrected, then don't grow weary. Don't quit working. It will not be in vain. If you know what time it is, if you know what could come any moment, then you won't lose heart. The person who has to chase after the desires of the flesh is the person who thinks there is no resurrection. It's the person who thinks I got to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. But the Christian, the one who has faith in what is true and understands the time, is the only one that can deny themselves chasing after every pleasure and love their enemies, love other people, and love God. They can take their life plan and cast it off as works of darkness. That's how I used to live when I wasn't believing the right narrative, when I didn't know what time it was. And Peter's writing to Christians because Christians can begin to live like they used to live. That's why the exhortation is there. One more verse, 2 Peter 3.10. We'll look at how Peter says it in 2 Peter. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? and the heavenly bodies will melt away. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. You see that? Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The point is, If the end is at hand and that's what's going to happen, be diligent in the present to live for Christ. Tom Schreiner says, the New Testament never invites believers to withdraw from the world because the end is near and to gaze at the skies, hoping that the Lord will return soon. That's what fundamentalism tends to do it looks at the world and says the world's evil and so i'm going to take my family and our little church group and we're going to hide out 
We're just going to wait for Jesus to come. We're never called to do that. We're called to be diligent. We're called to go to the nations and preach the gospel. We're called to be evangelicals in the sense of we're heralds. We're ambassadors. The king has given us a charge. We have limited time. We know what time it is. We know the time's limited. You are not just to be a good coworker and be nice and wait for Jesus to come and let your views be your views and let their views be their views. You need to know what's going to happen to your lost co-workers. You need to know that God has called you to speak. God has called you to be diligent. God has called you to take action. God has given you spiritual gifts that we're going to look at next week to be used. Your life is not about you. It's to be lived for His glory and for the good of other people. And that's when you will be happy. The lie is live for the drunken party where you feel a certain way and it does no one else any good. Young people, this generation needs shining lights. It doesn't need Christians one foot dabbling in what they're doing in the works of darkness and one foot in church. It needs people like you to live your life as though you really believe what the Bible says is true. Christ could come today. He could come tonight. And that party where you have fun and you make them feel good because you're doing what they're doing could be the last night they have or the last night you have and what a tragedy if God called you to be the one to deliver the light and instead you lived your life for you that's what Peter is driving at and so he says the end is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded What does self-controlled and sober-minded mean? It means, first of all, it means that we are clear-minded. Tom Schreiner says they're basically synonyms. These are not two fundamentally different things. They're fundamentally the same thing. Uh, Some translations says, be sane. Have sanity. Think clearly. Know what time it is. Because we can live as though we're believing the narrative that is a lie. But don't do that. Live with sanity. Live in reality. Let your mind be clear thinking. The word translated sane means having sound mind thinking about evaluating situations maturely and correctly so peter is saying know what time it is and think sanely think about what's really true 
It really is the last days. The time really is short. Your co-workers are really going to hell apart from Christ. That really is an eternal place. God has really given you spiritual gifts. He really does expect you to live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning now that you're saved, live for Him. You don't live for Him to get saved. You live for Him because you are saved. Have you been living a self-controlled and sober-minded life? Or have you been running a different narrative through your head? Have you been running the narrative of life short? I'm only young once. I got to live now. That's from Satan. That's a lie from the devil. Maybe you've been thinking, I just need to live my peaceful, quiet life and have my Bible study and let, let my neighbor's views be my neighbor's views and let my, you know, I'm just going to be nice. That's a false narrative. It's not what we've been called to. We've been called to take action in light of what time it is. I'm going to give you three words that I think is going to help you understand what is being self-controlled and sober-minded look like. If you don't know what it looks like, you can't be it. So I did a word study on this word sober-minded. And every time that word showed up, similar things showed up following that word that helps us understand what we're being called to. I want to show you some of these. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. All right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. So there it is, all right? Now listen. Keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So the idea there is those who are asleep aren't ready. And those who are drunk aren't, also aren't clear-minded. They're not ready to act. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober or let us be sane. And then he says this, having put on the breastplate of faith. All right. I think we're getting the definition of sober mindedness. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith. 
Now, here's what faith is. Faith is thinking rightly about God's word in the present. To be sober-minded is to be living by faith in the present, to be thinking rightly in the present. Second word, and love. To be sober-minded is to not only to be thinking right, but to be acting right. To be loving others. Love is an action. And the third word, and for, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So to be sober-minded means to put on the breastplate of faith and, and love and to put on the helmet, the hope of salvation. So the word is hope. Now what's the difference between faith and hope? Faith is living in the present according to God's word, what God has called us to, and in light of what God has said. Hope is thinking about the end of the story. We know what is going to happen in the end. And so for order, in order for us to be sober-minded, we need to think like Jesus thought. That was the sermon the last couple of weeks. And to live like Jesus lived. And so we need to have faith and love and hope. That's what it means to be sober-minded. Now I'm just telling you that those are the opposite of sensuality. Sensuality is all about me. Look at me. Drunkenness is all about me and my pleasure and my uh, passions being satisfied. But we're not to be like that. We're to be sober-minded. And uh, you don't need to turn to these. I'll just go through them rapid fire. First Timothy 3, see if you can hear, hear some of these. This is uh, speaking to uh, the deaconesses. It says, their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So, sober-minded means to act in faith in all things. To be thinking rightly in every circumstance. Or 2 Timothy 4.5 As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. This is to Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, be sober-minded endure suffering you might be tempted to just worry about your flesh or your passions being encroached upon do your work god has given you a ministry timothy sober-mindedness is acting in love with what god has called him to or in titus 2 1 in qualifications to elders it says but as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. You hear that? Faith and love and steadfastness secured in this hope. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, the very letter we're in, in verse 13, listen to this. Prepare your mind for actions, being sober-minded. 
Now, what does that mean, Peter? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the true narrative of what's coming. And so you say, well, there's hope, but then read the next verse. As obedient children, (laughs) be obedient to what I've called you to. If God is holy, you be holy. And then one more, 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6, we're told, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. This is what my girls and I do at night when we pray, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So, what are you worrying about, girls? What are you thinking about? Be honest. Well, we talk about it. We're going to cast it to Jesus because He cares for us. All right? And then He says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing... So, there you have faith. Resist him, firm in the faith. This is what it means to be sober-minded and ready for the devil, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't throw a pity party. We're all suffering in the fallen world. Don't feel sorry for your flesh. And then he says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you're to be sober-minded, you have to know that narrative. You're going to suffer for a little while. This world may reject you. Yes, you're not living your best life now in the sense of, of just satisfying every passion you have, but you know for all eternity what's in store for you, Christian. And now, quickly... Let's ask the question, what does being sober-minded have to do with our prayers? Because it says, for the sake of your prayers. How can we pray like Jesus prayed? We must think how He thought. We must live like He lived. Then we can pray how He prayed. Grudem says that The idea is not simply so that we can pray like the NIV says. It doesn't say be sober-minded so that you can pray, but in order to pray more effectively and more appropriately. Christians should be alert to events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. Peter's words also imply that prayer must be based on knowledge and the mature evaluation of a situation will bring about more effective prayer. And so, we don't pray well when we're doing the things that we see in verse 3. Living like the Gentiles live. 
Have you ever prayed well when you're living in sensuality, in passions, in drunkenness, in orgies, and drinking parties, and lawless idolatry? Has that ever caused your prayer life to flourish? Are you overwhelmingly uh, giving your life away to others and thinking about others when you're giving in to the passions of your flesh? These things have never led to effective prayer. But my question is, is do you believe that your prayers are important? Do you even care about your prayers? Does it even bother you that your prayers might be ineffective? Why ought you to care about your prayers? Well, if you know the right narrative, then you'll be on your knees. When I'm not praying, I'm not seeing my neighbor rightly. When I'm not praying, I'm not realizing I'm going to give an account to Christ for my life. It's when I see the reality of eternal destruction, when I see the reality that I'm going to give an account to God, that I need the power of God in my life. I need Him to act. I need Him to give the strength and the encouragement and the power. Not many of you may have ever craved veggies. But here's the reality. You'll never crave veggies if you don't stop eating potato chips and pizza. Never once when I'm full on potato chips and pizza do I think, boy, a carrot would taste good now. It's not until we rid ourselves of the passions of the flesh that we desire to be filled by God, to be strengthened by God, to want fellowship with God in His presence, to have a clear conscience before God. The point is this. If you're not fighting your flesh, you won't be praying. It's when you enter the battle against the flesh that you have to pray. Those desires need to be fulfilled somewhere else. The power to defeat those sins need to come from God and from His Word. It was interesting as I was thinking, what do, what do all these things have in common? James, all these prayer texts, James 4 says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Those are poor prayers. And then he says, uh, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So when our passions are in play, our prayers will be faulty. 
when we're chasing and satisfying the passions of the flesh, our prayers will be wrong. They'll be weak. They won't be powerful. And then I thought of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in the garden to the disciples right before he was betrayed? He came to them and found them sleeping. And he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's what he says. He says, I know you're tired, Peter. And I know that you love me. And I know that you want to serve me. That's what it means. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so watch, in a sense, be sober-minded and pray. Because what you want to do won't happen. There's a connection between the weakness of the passions of our flesh and prayer. And then he says, he went away again and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man has been betrayed into the hands of sinners. I think it's a good example because they want to do what's right, but they're not sober-minded. They don't recognize the spiritual battle they need to be fighting in the moment. And they would rather have their sleep in that moment where there is no fight and no war against the passions of our flesh, there will be no prayer. So when I ask the question, how's your prayer life? And inside you say, not that good. Then what you should say is, I must not be in the battle against the passions of my flesh much. I much... I must be living this life that's all about me and protecting my life rather than giving it away for the sake of Christ. Your prayer life is like a flashing red light, a window into your heart. And I'm sure convicts all of you as it convicts me that we need to be more awake and more ready and more sober-minded in light of the fact that the end is at hand. Father, I pray that in light of Christ dying on the cross for our sins, that we receive by free grace, and in light of the call in order to follow Christ, is that we give up our life. It's His life to be lived for His will. Lord, I pray that we would realize the incredible importance that we be a praying people in these times. This week, Lord, let us not be satisfied with prayers that are hindered, with, with prayers that are weak. And therefore, Lord, let us be fully in the battle against our flesh and in lives of holiness. Lord, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.